I'm Holly Wayment, and this is Pediatrics Now. If you're a practitioner, click on the link for free credit. Today on Pediatrics Now, we're coming to you from the Texas Pediatrics Society, where Dr. Alice Gong gave this wonderful talk regarding breastfeeding. Let's listen in. Um, most of you know who I am. I've been around for a long time and I've done a lot of stuff. And why am I interested in talking to you about breastfeeding? And it's because there's been so many advances in breastfeeding medicine. And I'm just astounded by all the new evidence that's out there. And things that I was taught are no longer true. So hopefully I can share some of that with you. I do not have any disclosures. So I want to impress on you the importance of those first thousand days of a newborn's life, and especially those in vulnerable populations. The first thousand days is the time from conception to age two, and there's critical development of the body, the brain, metabolism, and immune systems. And in 2022, AAP changed their breastfeeding policy again, and for for once they said, we, you know, we as pediatricians should provide anticipatory guidance to support breastfeeding continuation with mom's goals in mind and then to incorporate the observation of breastfeeding into clinical care. Something I was pushing for 10, 20 years ago in our newborn nursery to have the residents, you know, watch when mom is breastfeeding to see how she's doing. But most people don't do that. Okay, and then finally, I'm going to use some case studies to talk about some common breastfeeding problems. So breastfeeding is a very vital part of how humans evolved and how we became the predominant mammalian species. So this statement quoted by WHO in 1979 said that breastfeeding is the natural and ideal way of feeding and provides a unique biologic and emotional basis for child development, plays an important role on the prevention of infections, on health and well-being and economics for the mother and her family, as well as her country. So it is the responsibility of the society to promote breastfeeding and to protect pregnant and lactating mothers from influences that could disrupt that. So keep that in mind. I think this is very powerful. So I already talked to you about what the first thousand days are, but it is the most important part of our lifespan that affects the survival and the quality of our lives. There are three stages, and the first stage is the most lethal because it covers the first 28 uh, weeks. Because by eight weeks, a lot of, uh, I guess, um, embryos are no longer viable. And actually, 50 to 60% do not make it beyond 20 weeks. Okay, The perinatal stage is from 28 weeks to seven days postnatal. There's a lot of mortality here from prematurity, hypoxic ischemic encephalopathy, malformations, infections, metabolic disorders. Orders. This is the time that we can impact a lot on uh, improvements in perinatal mortality. And in the last phase is lactation. Okay, failure to provide these key nutrients during those first thousand days gives us things like developmental shortfalls and lifelong deficits in brain function. So to help optimize development and fuel a healthy pregnancy, we need to know 
what these essential nutrients are and that they should be part of the diet. So this is a diagram um, that shows the importance of what we know about nutrition on the physiology of the developing fetus and that fetus's brain. Uh, we know that if you have an imbalance of folate and iodine and vitamin D early on in that first trimester, you can end up with neurotube defects, skeletal defects. As the fetus develops, if you lack things that are like calcium, cho choline, folate, iron, omega-3s, and vitamin D, you can impact the major functional and minor deficits in the second and third trimester. And then if you, let's see if I can get this arrow. If you um, look at the, the amount of synaptogenesis and brain development that happens between that newborn and the first two years and how it correlates with the development that we see, you realize how important uh, nutrition and in particularly if we have breastfeeding can make that much better. Okay. So lactation, this last phase, is actually the greatest metabolic cost to reproduction. And actually, it's a period of conflict because, you know, the baby, the offspring, gets the most if he can be breastfed as long as possible because he gets access to mother and you get all this investment of the mother to nurture that child. The mother, on the other hand, can be more better in terms of her nutrients if she weans early and she gain, regains fertility and prepares for the next offspring. That's why uh, the royals had wet nurses, so they can keep making babies uh, so that there's heirs to the uh, ruling class. Okay. Breastfeeding is natural, but it's not easy, and it takes effort. The baby wants to be held and kept close to the mother. That's where they've been the whole time. And so when mom wants to put baby aside and do her other stuff, babies are not happy, okay? So it, it, it is kind of a conflict because mom wants to sleep. She has all these other things she has to do, uh, and um, baby doesn't like it. So, and this goes on all night long. I've had that experience personally, okay? So... If, with primates, when you watch the apes and stuff, they don't get rid of their babies. Once they have them, they stay with them. They, they get to stay with them 24-7, and they know that if they leave that baby, that baby could die. So it is what we do in our modern world and the demands we have on the mother that forces her to not be able to uh, nurture and uh, provide nutrients for her baby. Okay, so human lactation is the normal method of infant feeding because without it, we wouldn't be here. Without it, if we didn't have, if, you know, 20 or 30,000 years ago, if this didn't develop, we would not survive as a species. So when people talk about increased risk of, or decreased risk when you're breastfeeding because you get you decreased risk of asthma and diabetes and so forth, you're not talking about what could be what is the normal. The normal is that you don't have these risks. And and by providing something that's not normal, you increase risk for these diseases. Okay, so not getting enough not baby not getting mom's milk is basically you're losing all the programming stimuli and all the parts of human development that should have been there so with 
artificial feeding is is an experiment. I mean, we started it because we said, oh, we need something else to feed the baby. We can feed the baby this. And what were our measurements? We were measuring can they grow and gain weight. Um, and that may not be the only measurement that's important. So breastfeeding is about reduction of risk and that um, we survive because we, can, we did not have this risk. We have created this risk because we have introduced artificial feeding. Okay, so this is a study that was done um, sorry, I'm, in Cincinnati, and it's a prospective study linking about 10 million U.S. births born between 2016 and 18, and these births that were followed for a year, with postnatal deaths. Okay, so the odds ratio for breastfeeding initiation, just breastfeeding initiation, doesn't say they have they did more than what they did in the hospital, and post perinatal infant mortality was 0.67, so that's a 33% increase risk of post perinatal deaths if you were not breastfed. Okay, so. What should pediatricians do? So P the AAP in the most recent statement says, pediatricians play a critical role in the hospitals, in your practices, in your communities to be advocates for breastfeeding. And they need to be trained about the normalcy of breastfeeding for mothers and babies and in managing breastfeeding problems. And according to the United Nations Human Rights, breastfeeding is a human rights issue for both the mother and the child. The child has the right to life, survival, and development to the highest attainable standard of health, and breastfeeding is an integral part of this. Okay, unfortunately, as in everything else in our society, there are disparities in breastfeeding, so fewer Black babies are ever breastfed compared to Asian and your non-Hispanic whites and your Hispanic babies. Is there's an economic issue too? So babies who are eligible and get WIC are less likely to be, ever be breastfed than babies who were eligible but did not get WIC or infants who were not eligible for WIC. And younger mothers are less likely to ever breastfeed than older mothers. So this is a, a, um, a diagram of what has happened with breastfeeding rates. So that you can see that with the work that we've done since 2010, so over a decade, we've improved breastfeeding rates for all populations, including the African-American uh, population. However, that gap, that gap that keeps, it, it continues to exist. So I'm going to review some of the studies that are available for um, why we have these issues. So this was a study um, done for in, Minnesota, for in Michigan, and they wanted to understand the factors that influence breastfeeding in a sample of African-American women. And so what they found were micro to macro socioeconomic model levels that discourage or uh, reinforced breastfeeding. And the key challenges they found were that um, were discouragement issues, things that decreased the confidence of these women that led to early termination. Um, so things that 
were challenges of how they were not meeting breastfeeding goals. One had to do with like waning confidence. So my doctor told me she wasn't eating enough. I don't know. She told me she was gaining weight, was still on the curve, but she told me she should be eating more. So it's a message that you're not making enough milk. Discouragement for issues that are associated with breastfeeding. Well, if I didn't have to work right away, I would probably have been able to keep breastfeeding, and that's a major issue. I, our, our women are a major part of our workforce, and consequently that has not allowed them to do what they want to do with their babies. So what the women said is they wanted tangible, immediate, and proactive support. The, the things in the hospital were great, but when I went home, it wasn't there anymore. And, you know, they want resources where they can access it not because they have to go somewhere else to get it. And they want positive, non-judgmental support from prof that, are prof that is professional and personal. Like what they said was, you know, tell me that you're going to be there. Tell me this is, I'm part, you're part of my journey, that you're here to help me. Tell me that things may get better, not to just, you know, that things will get better, and that, that, that it's not always going to be like this to keep me going. And so some suggestions were, that they gave was they wanted education about milk supply and use of pump. So one person said, the only thing I did was just pump and pump so I could make milk, but I didn't know how to use the pump. And have someone show me how to do it instead of telling me to look at a YouTube video. Um, there was a lot about self-motivation, willpower, and perseverance, and they said, they got to have confidence because if they don't or they let someone else persuade without thinking about it, they will quit. You know, so we need to support all our patients equitably and with an understanding of where they are from and how we can meet them where they are. And I think you as pediatricians in the workforce, I mean, I, one of the things that we were kind of led to believe was Breastfeeding is good. They're lactation consultants. Just send them there. The, the issue is if you don't address some of these issues in your office, um, then you don't have that credibility that you at least know what this is about. And you know that mom may never get to that LC. They may not be able to get an appointment. They may not have the money to pay for it. There's just so many barriers. So this is a, a study just to highlight what are some common breastfeeding um, problems in that first six months. So this is a population um, in Kinesha, which is in the Congo. This is a predominantly breastfeeding population. But a third of them will have problems in the first six months. And that's cracked nipples, sore nipples, not making enough milk, and breast engorgement. So we're going to cover some of these common problems. <coughs> I guess this is not, usually I had things coming in order. But So the first case that I want to talk about is this baby that you're seeing at the two-week visit. And mom wanted to exclusively breastfeed this baby like she did with her other two children. But she's having a lot of pain with feeding. So when you examine the baby, you notice this. Everybody know what that is? I've got it written down, so <laughs> so it's not like it. So the baby had a high uh, arch palate, and so you watch the mom breastfeed, and you see that he's just getting a tiny bit of the breast tissue, the uh, the uh, 
the nipple stem in his mouth, his lips are pursed, his mouth is not open, you know, the tongue is not in the right place, he's compressing and not much milk is coming out, okay? And the tongue does not work well, okay? All right, I'm gonna, so I'm, it's, I don't have enough time to get everybody going, so <laughs> I will be. So we need to know how babies breastfeed. And when I went to an ABM conference and saw this, I went, wow, that was such earth shaking. So what happens, what the, the group did in Australia was they did ultrasounds of babies who breastfed just to learn exactly what's going on. So the baby puts the nipple in the mouth and the tip needs to be between the hard and soft palate. And the anterior part of uh, the tongue compresses on the tissue here and then drops down. And when it drops down, it creates that vacuum in the back of the throat, allowing the milk to come out and be, um, goes right into the esophagus. Novel, isn't it? Always thought they were sucking, right? It's really compression and uh, a vacuum. And the, the concept is that they have to suck, swallow, and breathe uh, one to one to one is highly variable. Breastfeeding babies feed the way they want to. Sometimes they may, you know, suck or compress and get enough milk before they swallow. Sometimes they, they you know, it's just very different. But we do, they, what they show was that as the baby matures, this, there's less reliance on that vacuum and the baby can extract milk. And actually that breathing is much easier and that O2 sats are higher, heart rates are better during breastfeeding. So that's the physiology of how it happens. So, yes? Let's see what we can do. I hope I don't run over. I'm going to get there. Can you hold? Okay. Okay. It's coming. Okay. So with a high arch palate, so you the the way it uh, impacts is that you get can't get that vacuum because you don't have the uh, nipple in the right place. And then these kids have more uh, more hypersensitive gag reflex, flex, so they can't get that deep latch. And so uh, moms may say they hear clicking or leaking milk because they can't get that seal. So by putting, having mom put her finger on her breast, like this diagram, getting the nipple up kind of close to the nose and then making, getting the baby to take a big deep breath, you can actually get that nipple to the right place and then the baby can eat. It sounds simple, doesn't it? That just all no. you need to do. <laughs> it's just not. But you know, it is really helping the mom try to find another way so that the baby can get that latch the baby needs to to overcome that high arch palate. Okay. So high arch palate, what what should you do? Different positions. Some babies may do better if they're upright. Some babies may do better if they're sidelined. So they're just try that. Um, for the moms that have nipple damage, they really need to protect that. So hydrogel is recommended, something nonstick that will keep the, uh, the nipple uh, cover so that she can heal. And it's a very vasculous um, tissue, so it will heal fast. And I know some people say, well, just put some breast milk on it. Uh, the, the breast surgeons and the wound people say that might work for things that are not that uh, deep, but if you get uh, deep cracks and so forth, you need to go with hydrogel. 
If the baby's not latching well, just break the latch. And these kids are gonna have a harder time taking a lot of milk. I mean, they may be able to get some, so you may have to feed them more often. They may feed for shorter periods of time, but it is, it is a song and dance about the mother and the baby. So the mom, once she give her some tips and so forth, she may be able to figure this thing out. But I would follow these kids pretty closely. Okay, your case. <laughs> so you're seeing a baby for her six-week visit. She is exclusively breastfeeding and growing well. She's in the 25th centile. So you examined the baby and you found that tongue tie, okay? And mom said, oh yeah, the, uh, the nurse at the hospital told me about this and said it may be a problem. And so she actually had called a dentist who said, oh, yes, we can fix that. Uh, you need to give us $900. And he said, and by the way, I'll, I'll do the uh, upper lip tie too. Upper lip tie? Anyway, so the baby's scheduled for the appointment next week, and mom says, you know, I'm kind of worried. We don't have that much money, and we, insurance does not cover this. So what's ankylosia? So you have a, a frenulum that may be uh, anterior or posterior, but it's connective tissue that underlies the tongue and that can impair suckling, okay? And the can is the word. So the challenge is to see, do you have a normal variation or do you have something that can impact, uh, have a functional impact, okay? So 50% of the babies with tongue ties have no problems at all. They, they do just fine. Like this baby, this baby's breastfeeding fine and growing. And it's because it depends, it's a, it's a song and dance of mother and baby. So if the mom's uh, nipples are elastic enough and she can make enough milk, she can overcome this and the baby will never even know that, okay? Others who may not be as restrictive, but mom who's not making enough milk or whose nipples are not as elastic or she may have flat nipples would have more problems. So it's not just looking at the baby, it's looking at mother and baby, okay? And I know it's like, I'm a pediatrician, I don't look at moms, but <laughs> I think if you, you need to start thinking about that. There is so much controversy about ankyloglossia. It is like there are so many players. There's the ENT docs, the oral surgeons, the dentists, the pediatricians, the speech language pathologists, the lactation consultants. Everybody has an issue. I mean, I am seeing more babies come in where the mom is saying, oh yes, my, the lactation consultant says my baby needs to have uh, a tongue tie fixed. And it's, it's I mean, it's, it's even common in my population, so. By golly, look at all those articles being published about ankyloglossia. I mean, you know, in the 90s, it was like, okay, well, it may be a problem and so forth, but the issue with ankyloglossia and uh, breastfeeding, the number of publications have just skyrocketed. Okay, so the ENT guys, those smart guys, the otolaryngologists, got together. They, they brought all their experts together, and they used a modified Delphi method to figure out what expert opinion is on the clinical statements uh, about ankyloglossia. Okay, and they did um, three iterations of it. They had 89 statements, and then they 41 met their criteria, but they were adamant there is no level one evidence on the benefits of phrenectomy on breastfeeding. 
Okay, so I just kind of highlighted their, their hot spots. So the number one thing that, uh, but there was one outlier, is that breastfeeding difficulties are common in the newborn period, and there is evidence that the uh, anterior tongue time may contribute to it. And then there is usually maternal pain and poor latch can be caused by that, um, but it can also be caused by other factors. Um, that if you're gonna evaluate it, you need a good history, which includes a lactation history, a physical exam, and inspection and palpation. You need to put your finger down there and feel and see what it's like. And then before you do that, you need to evaluate for other factors. Because something like retronactia, where the, there's the recess, if the tongue being tied down may be helpful to keep the tongue from falling back to keep the baby from breathing. So it's not, you don't want to just clip that baby's tongue. In fact, sometimes with the Pierre Robins, they come in and tie the tongue down so they can get the tongue out of the way. So. Anyway, so uh, there is so that there is some contraindications for not doing it, and um, one of the things is that you need to tell the mom that you, even doing it may not improve the breastfeeding experience. And they were very adamant that upper lip frenulum is normal and not to try to take that out. Okay, I didn't realize I had all that stuff up there. Okay. Uh, okay, so our next case, did I answer your questions? Yeah, I, I still, I guess I'm a little confused on, is there, it doesn't does sound like there's anything physiologic going on then, really, except for, I mean, I don't know, what, what I... What it I it can keep the tongue from, tongue the out. tongue can be tied down enough that the tongue can't do that upward movement, and so, but if your mom's nipples are very elastic, it may just fit just right, whereas others that even though they don't have as much restriction, the, if the mom doesn't have the equipment that can help the baby, then you may need to do something. Or if the tongue doesn't get, if the tongue gets out over the lip, is that usually gonna be okay? So I don't think it matters. It really, it, it is really about the position of whether you end up with the nipple and the areola and can they compress? Can they push up and then go back to create that vacuum? Okay. Okay. Our next case is a uh, mom that is uh, 35 years old. It's her first baby, and the pregnancy was complicated by um, gestational diabetes, and she was on metformin, and the labor was complicated by chorioamnionitis, and the baby had to go to the NICU for a sepsis evaluation. So, mom and baby were separated. Um, he was discharged with her, and. Um, but during the time that the baby was in the NICU for the two days or three days, the, he only was latched once and never really fed from the breast, and he was fed with a bottle. So mom didn't pump that time. When the baby came in for the two-week uh, newborn screen, uh, I think mom said, I really wanted to breastfeed my baby, so the lactation consultant saw her, advised her to pump if she's not doing direct breastfeeding, and um, showed her how to use the pump. So you're seeing the baby at five weeks, and mom is telling you, the only time I can get this baby to latch is because 
you know, is in the mornings, and uh, he gets very fussy when I try to feed him. Uh, he cries and arches his back, and she's giving him a bottle, and he takes two to three ounces. She's trying to pump every two hours during the day and every three to four hours, and she's not getting much. Okay, so this, anyway, what are you going to do? Okay, you watch a, a feeding, and you did a weighted feed. Um, baby got about four mLs, okay? Why did this happen? Well, when there was no nipple stimulation and emptying during that first two weeks, you basically ended up with atrophy of your lactocytes. I mean, basically, she was uh, going into uh, stopping breastfeeding. So if this mom had normal breast development during her pregnancy and there's no breast hypoplasia, she could probably reactivate and relactate. For a healthy woman, that, uh, it's, it frequently takes as long as six to eight weeks. Because she's older and has gestational diabetes, she's at higher risk for in inadequate secretory activation and may not ever be able to produce enough milk for her baby for exclusive breastfeeding. So you ask her OB to check her prolactin levels and thyroid and that her prolactin was normal. It was above 127. It was 127 and she had a normal thyroid stimulating hormone. So you don't have thyroid issues. And with the high prolactin, some of the galactagogues like the Paradigm and Metoclopramine is not going to help much. Those um, better use when the, 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 not, the prolactin is not elevated. So um, the thing to do is to encourage her to try, but not to make that her exclusive way of feeding her baby. And you can try things like goat's rule or metformin. Uh, the, there's a whole bunch of uh, stuffing breastfeeding medicine about that. And I know that's probably not in your bailiwick, but try to refer them to someone who can help them with some galactagogues that may help her increase her production. Okay, engorgement, what is that? So after colostrum comes lactogenesis two, that's the onset of your milk production, okay? Usually happens around day three to five, um, earlier if it's a normal vaginal delivery, later if it's a cesarean section, uh, mom's breast gets really engorged and it, the baby should be able to take larger volumes of milk to empty her. So frequently she's going to have some pain and some trauma because it's harder for a baby to latch during that time. The treatment for this is so different from what I was taught, which was to massage the breast, get that milk out, pump it out, empty the breast. Uh, but in fact, What's happening with engorgement is you actually have more um, inflammation going on, and you need to treat it like it's an inflammatory organ. Use anti-inflammatories and co-compressors, and only feed enough to feed the baby. So there is delayed lactogenesis too, which is delayed the uh, people who don't make enough milk. Okay, they are usually your primates. They may not be able to uh, go into lactogenesis too, but beyond like three to five days. But if the baby is nursing, it, production will increase from day to day. But for these kids, we, it's very important to make sure the baby's growing. And uh, so there is an issue with uh, 
women who want to breastfeed. I mean, it is, um, it is ingrained in us as a species. That's something we should be doing. So if you have set up in your mind during your pregnancy, I'm going to breastfeed my baby and, you know, everything's going to be perfect. This is my birth plan and I'm going to do all this stuff. And when things don't work out, it is very hard on these moms. There's a lot of guilt and there's uh, a lot of I am not good enough. I can't feed my baby, you know, type stuff. So it's very important to pay attention that, to her mental health. And for the women who have low supply and can't make enough milk, you know, encourage them to do breastfeeding for comfort, you know, like do skin to skin, get the baby there. Um, the, the things that we used to prescribe, the triple feed, which is where mom feeds the baby, pumps, and then gives the baby some more, the milk through the bottle and all those things, that is really hard to do especially when you say eight to 10 times a day. So think about the mom's mental health and where she is and uh, encourage her, you know, like the longer she works with the baby, she may be able to make more and more milk and may be able to feed her baby. And certainly for the primate, if she does this, she's more likely to be able to feed her next child. Okay. Why is the baby fussy while he's eating? So you see this all the time. Mom's trying to put the baby to breast and baby's like this and screaming at her. Um, it's either too high flow or low flow, okay? High flow babies latch, they're fine, and then all of a sudden letdown comes and all this milk is rushing back there. So they clamp down, pull back and cough and choke and cry. And then they, you know, milk comes up through their nose and everybody's scared to death, okay? So try to figure out how mom can reduce that flow. And we'll talk a little bit more about hyperlactation because it's a huge problem. But getting gravity to help you, putting the baby in a sideline position may help. For the low flow baby, the baby is like, okay, I'm here, where's the milk? And the milk's not here. And the baby just kind of falls asleep. You know, mom may try to wake the baby up. Um, Things that she can do is she could try to do some compression, some hand expression to kind of help the milk come through so that the baby will get a better latch and, and start to try to stimulate the breast to make more milk, okay? So uh, a supplemental nursing system is one of the ways that that can happen. I've been asked, telling people about this for decades and most people don't do it. They tend to more get the milk into a bottle and give the baby the bottle. but. For the mom that really wants that breastfeeding experience, these are available. Okay, clicking noises. Why is that baby making click clicking noise? Well, the baby's trying to break the suction and trying to pull the tongue back or get the tongue, probably because something's not right, okay? So it can be that low flow or that high flow. Um, but when you have a mom that tells you her baby's making clicking noises, do check to make sure that the tongue is okay and that the palate's okay uh, to make sure that those are not problems. Okay, triple feed. Okay, so we used to tell moms to do this a lot, you know, and, and, but it really should be a temporary solution because it is so hard to do. And it's very demoralizing to a mom who's had her baby on the breast for five, 10 minutes, and the baby's asleep, and then she's pumping, and she gets out 15 cc's, and she has to wake that baby up and feed that baby, and then two, three hours, it repeats itself, 
okay? It's a lot of work. I mean, it's hard to feed babies from bottles anyway because you got to clean those bottles and you got to deal with all the pumping and stuff and, and then you're trying to breastfeed. So, and babies, even though they're not getting many calorie, uh, milk, they're still burning calories trying to uh, get milk. So it's not a good solution. Um, it can be a short term. There are people who just swear by it that they do it and it'll be fine. But I would not recommend that. Uh, get a good feel of where your mom is. What's her energy level? What is she wanting to do? Okay, so for those babies with low milk production and so forth, I say divide and conquer. So somebody else feed the baby. Let mom work on making milk. Okay, make sure she has lots to arrest, lots of, you know, good food and fluids and, and uh, don't stress her out. And then if she's pumping, then, you know, let dad or mom or grandma, uh, you know, feed the baby. Okay, because it is important that that baby gets nutrients to grow and that we support breastfeeding in that we can get mom through that time so that things can get better. Sometimes it takes for a mom with low milk production up to six weeks of getting her milk supply up to meet her baby's needs. And that's very demoralizing. You know, like, why can't I do it? Everybody else can do it. It's natural. Why can't I do it? So be patient, support your moms. Support the baby. You may have to see the baby more often to get, make sure they're gaining weight um, and stuff. Okay, case four, last one. <laughs> so you have a mom who brought you her baby, and the first thing she does is show you that diaper, okay? <laughs> and baby was born at 36 weeks, uh, delivered a C-section. Mom had pre-E and had a failed induction. So the baby had to go to the NICU because the baby had RDS and stay for a couple weeks. She's been thriving. She has gone from the 5th percentile to the 80th percentile, and she's exclusively breastfeeding. Say, woohoo, right? So she has been exclusively breastfed because that mom was going to do that. And she was power pumping while the baby was in the NICU to make sure the baby had enough milk. In fact, she had so, so much extra milk, she had gave some of it up before she left the NICU. And so this baby is mostly breastfed, but she's making some clicking noises. And sometimes she gets fussy and she chokes and she gets her head back. And, but, uh, and then mom would give her more express milk in the bottle. And the other thing that mom's doing is, in addition to feeding, she's pumping extra so that she can make extra milk because she's planning to go back to work and she wants to make sure the baby has enough milk. I will tell you that that is the story of so many people. <laughs> okay, so the baby does have a lot of gas. She spits up a lot. She's been sleeping through the night since she was a month old, and, um, but she does make that noise. And mom tries to wake her up to feed her at night because she's got milk and the baby doesn't want it. So she pumps and she gets four to six ounces. So this mom's making a lot of milk. And the baby's sores have been green and watery, but blood was noticed yesterday. You know what her diagnosis is? Hmm? I can't hear. What now? What did I? 
Ooh, that is such a pediatrician in response. Okay, <laughs> breastfeeding medicine. Okay. Hyperlactation oversupply. I gave you that. Okay. So she's making so much milk, and the baby is eating mostly for milk with a lot of lactose, which is where the gas is coming from, and that is what. And so you guys have all been brainwashed by the GI people. <laughs> Let me brainwash you to say this is an oversupply issue. Things that determine milk homeostasis is how much tissue mom has. So it does not matter whether you're skinny beanie or you're, you know, whatever. It's how much gland tissue you have. And skinny people can have a lot of gland tissue, and chunkier people like me may not have as much. So, okay. So how much alveola you have and how much that those alveolar distend, and how often you're emptying, and all these other neuroendocrine pathways to do with all your hormones, and then you have feedback inhibitor of lactation. So oversupply, hyperlactation can be self-induced, like this mom, she power pump, she's pumping extra, she's making tons of milk, more than the baby can eat. Could be iatrogenic, could be idiopathic. I know somebody that has that. So breastfeeding medicine has a um, thing on what you do of hypolactation. So if you have signs and symptoms of hypolactation, so what you get is that history I gave you. Baby is sleeping through the night, baby's growing, baby's got lots of milk, and, um, but has these awful gastric stuff, okay? So if you have that and you examine your baby and your baby looks fine, he's not... He's not having bloody stools because he can't process his food and his skinny meaning kind of thing. So you can treat that, okay? So make, it, make your diagnosis, and what, one of the first things you do is block feet. Have mom feet on one side only, and then switch for about 24 to 48 hours and monitor her and see if having more milk in the, uh, one side will allow feedback inhibition to take place and she can stop making so much. So if that works, you can kind of do that until she down-regulates enough to make the milk that her baby needs and no more. If that continues, there are some herbs that you can do. So there's peppermint and sage teas and pseudoephedrine works well if you can get it from over the counter or using oral contraceptives. Those things will down-regulate as well. And for some people it works, for some people it doesn't. Okay, if it doesn't, then the, the last thing is the carbogalin, that the dopamine agonist that we give women to have them dry up. And one of the things that you have to worry about is you're balancing, am I going to stop her lactation or am I not giving enough and she keeps going? So if, if that helps, you can stop the therapy and keep her. The goal is to downregulate her so that she makes it just enough milk for the baby, but not everybody else. Although there are women who continue to make a lot of milk and they end up donating, which is a great thing because all those little preemies in my NICU love getting donor milk. So kudos to those women who work hard to do that, but it's not a nice journey. Yes, Dr. Um, why is there blood? Because the, because the, huh? 
it's very common for them to have bloody stools when they have so much lactose that they're having to process. So they're processing mostly lactose and they're not getting as much of the cream and everything in the back of the, they're just getting a lot of full milk. Okay. It can, and which is why you would be careful with it. So, but block feeding allows the baby to get the whole feed from one breast. So they're getting a balanced diet. They're getting uh, full milk and hind milk, which will allow them to be able to have a better GI tract. And then, yes, initially it could be hard, uh, uncomfortable. So you tell the mom to kind of just express a little bit to get comfort on the other one, but you want, you do want her to have enough milk to get the feedback inhibition going. Okay? Yes, ma'am. I've encountered some moms that they think that their, ba their babies are allergic to their breast milk. Do you think that's possible? <laughs> we'll go there. I think you're just thinking like those GI guys. <laughs> So the treatment is to treat the hyperlactation and not try to make the stool better by putting her on formula. And so if you send that kid to the gastroenterologist, they will tell her to start formula and have to go on an elemental formula or she has to go on this restrictive diet and so forth. I will tell you, hyperlactation responses to you, these things. It works. The breastfeeding medicine world works with these patients and it works. And you do not have to make these moms go on dairy-free, soy-free, bread-free. <laughs> yes? How long the blood in the Usually if you can stop the hyper, if you can get, uh, the block feeding actually works because basically the baby's now getting the cream and all the things that are part of the milk instead of just the, the full milk, okay? Remember that full milk is mostly, is, is, is the stuff that comes at the beginning and then towards the end is where you get the cream. So when the baby gets that, the baby gets satiated earlier, doesn't have to eat as much, gut doesn't have to process as much, and you don't have all that extra lactose that they have to digest. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, I think that's what ABM says. I, I tell the moms to do one and then switch to the other side if she gets engorged so that it, it allows, because it gets very uncomfortable, but the engorgement is what you want. You want that to feedback to say, stop making so much milk. Because if the breast feels full, it will not make as much. It may take a little time, which is why they said try doing it three times, but it's not... There's no prescribed way, it's what works. Okay, so just remember, breastfeeding is not just about giving milk. Breastfeeding is about all the good things that go with that connection, that having that baby with you, baby feeling your warmth and, and all the emotional connections that are developing rather than, I mean, it is, it is okay to give in a bottle because we do it, but it is a lot of work to have a mom pump. And the thing is, that mom, if she pumps to empty, she's gonna be making a lot more milk than that baby can drink, okay? What now? Because there are studies uh, which are that moms are uh, pumping 
Absolutely. That's a different issue, okay? So, yes, there are moms that, and I mentioned that, preterm babies, babies in the NICU that can't feed right away. Yes, that is absolutely true. And, and, and hypolactation doesn't happen in those circumstances because you measure out how much they're getting. Whereas in this baby, when the baby who's direct breastfeeding, which is what we want, we don't want everybody to be making a bot, okay? Okay, so remember that, yes, it gets better, and the, the diarrhea, the reflux, and all that do resolve when you treat mom's hypolactation. So it is mom's breast and baby, you have to evaluate them both. Am I running short on time? Okay, so the other thing that I'm going to blow your mind about is about this concept of mastitis. When there is hypolactation, and that actually does happen quite often, most women make a lot of milk and then they regulate themselves. But what you don't want is to get to dysbiosis. So in the process of hypolactation, because the alveoli are making so much milk, your ducts are very narrow. And so you get inflammation. And when you continue that, that you can get to the mastitis and the abscess, which is what you don't want. So there are host factors and microbial factors. So don't forget, the human milk has a microbiome of its own. So host factors, microbiome, and then there are things that we do on medicine. So what you want is to promote a healthy mammary gland, and if you give it more protective factors, you're gonna do better, and if you, don't, if you do predisposing factors, you lead to more dysbiosis. So the predisposing things that we do is antibiotics and um, all these other things you know, uh, that uh, can happen. So anyway, so the next thing is the diagram of what actually happens. So, in this uh, circle here is w where you have a lot of milk. You have your breasts engorged, so you have your alveoli full of milk. These little ducts are squeezed, and so you get inflammation, you get tissue edema, which is part of what you get. So it's not, when you, mom's breasts are engorged, there is edema, there is all these things. The thing to do is to cool down the inflammation. So if you use ice, not heat, if you use anti-inflammatories, and then if you allow the milk to just normally be taken out and not to empty the breast, you're gonna get to the state where the, the alveoli are gonna get smaller and you're gonna have better ducts and you're gonna have better drainage, okay? I promise you, this blew my mind the first time I learned about this. It's kind of like, whoa, this is not what most people ha tell me. Okay, but uh, so remember that women who have anxiety and depression have higher rates of mastitis syndrome. So getting the mom to be less anxious, helping her uh, get her mental health issues addressed, um, will be very helpful in this as well. And so I part of the PeriPan program, which is coming around to where we can get some maternal mental health stuff. Okay, so this is a, a, a great um, a diagram that was produced by an IV, uh, IBCLC. So 
the majority of mastitis is inflammation, not infection, and that using block management and so forth is helpful. So the breast gets red, don't massage it because you're just gonna make things worse. Okay, imagine an inflamed thing getting um, massaged. Icing it, remembering that the breast is a delicate and complex organ with many things in there, giving anti-inflammatories. Don't feed, don't pump more. I mean, you feed to what the baby needs, but don't overfeed and don't over. And then think of lymphatic drainage is what you want instead of massage. You don't want to hurt that. And, you know, a lot of times the women will say, I had these little plugs here. It's not really a plug. It's really that you've got um, alveoli that are distended and your ducts are not good. So you want to calm that down and allow the ducts to carry the milk away. Hope that understands that. Okay. Finally, I just want to go over some common baby things that we all have to think about. So baby wants to be held. Okay. I'll go quick. This is my child. <laughs> Every time I got her nice and comfortable, fed, diaper change and everything, and I, she's sound asleep in my arms and I put her down, she goes, wah! Why? Because they are, they, they, they crave their mother. And, and our mothers are like, you know, hey, I gotta go to work, I've gotta go do this. So we want that child to sleep so we can sleep and that's where the problem lies, okay? So taking shifts with the partner, getting someone else to help you if you're tired, um, but don't fall asleep on the couch, on the rocking chair with your child, thinking that's safer than putting them down. Um, and then there is a, a lot about a safe bed service. There is a lot of controversy, but what I saw lately is putting the mattress on the floor, you know, and don't put anything else in the bed but you and the baby. You can have the husband there too. Okay, so growth patterns for breastfed babies are different from formula-fed babies. So don't get into that mistake of my ba your baby's not growing well. Um, use the WHO growth curves, which were established by a group of babies around the world that were breastfed for at least 12 months and was predominantly breastfed for at least four months. And they had their complementary foods introduced at five and uh, five months, about five months. So there is a huge difference, and you don't want to use a baby that's growing well, that look like he's growing well on WHO chart, but on the CDC chart, he looks like he's not growing well because they're different. And if you've got breastfeeding babies, you want to use that. There's also um, differences between groups. I mean, I had a, a young lady come to me who was Chinese, and she said, my doctor says I'm not feeding my baby enough. And I said, Are you, what kind of growth curve is he using? So I pulled out the one from Hong Kong, and her baby was right there at the 50th percentile. So, um, and, and I mean, they were saying, you know, you need to feed your baby more, you got to give your baby formula, and she was not wanting that. Okay, baby sleeping at night. That wonderful baby who goes to, you know, that sleeps through the night by six weeks, that's the baby who has mom who has a lot of milk, is growing well, they're laid back, and those kinds of things. I didn't have any of those babies, okay? <laughs> but, so one thing is not, you know, the mom should feed according to the cues of the baby. So if the baby's waking up once to eat, she should do that, but not to make her wake up the baby to feed because you're then getting her to make more milk. 
okay? And will she develop mastitis and so forth if the baby sleeps longer? If, the, if she has things that are normal and she has a normal feedback inhibition, she should reduce the overproduction at night and decrease inflammation. She should be able to rest better and do better, okay? So there are some babies who sleep overnight. I didn't get any of those, but they're wonderful, okay? So um, the framing of the back to sleep the ABM protocol talks about physiologic infant care, okay? How to manage it at night. Allowing the babies to set their own circadian rhythm, and they usually can do that within the first few months. Breastfeeding at night is normal. When babies and mothers are separated, the babies are in distress. They're more likely to have a sudden infant death syndrome. So trying to help the mom sleep better by having someone else feed the baby and so and giving them formula doesn't really work. So the research has shown moms that bed share, and I know it's a bad term, but all over the world it happens. And Dr. McKenna has been studying it for a long time to know that it is a physiologic thing and it's not something we should shame people about. Okay, so um, I'm going to go quickly over this. Just remember there's different latch positions and nipple shields are not helpful, okay? They're only really helpful when you have moms who have very large breasts and flat nipples, but the baby, when they're sucking on a nipple shield, is not sucking on the breast, so they're not stimulating milk production. So. Can I finish this and then we'll talk, okay? So the baby may be sucking and maybe some milk will come out, but they're not gonna do well. So better to, and then the mom that's got oversupply of nipple show is sometimes used because they can stop getting so much milk, but it's better to use other things than to use the nipple show. Okay, and again, maternal mental health is very important. We need to pay attention to that. So ask your moms how they feel about what's happening. And I've already talked about sleepy baby, uh, pumping rules. Don't, moms should not pump more than what their babies need. Okay, some resources that I think are very important. Uh, the UNC group have been working with breastfeeding. They have a uh, website called Ready, Set, Baby. The, the one I highly recommend is the Institute for Advancement of Breastfeeding and Lactation Education. It's called the IABLE Group. They do a lot to promote education for everybody to talk about breastfeeding. And then Dr. Katrina Mitchell, who is a breast surgeon and a lactation, uh, she has some really neat pictures and guys. Thank you so much for listening to Pediatrics Now. I'm Holly Wayment. Click on the link in this podcast for free credit I'll see you next time. Coming up next week, we'll hear from a pediatric surgeon. Why are some surgeries not so cutting edge? That'll be a Grand Rounds episode for MOC credit. We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to Pediatrics Now.